Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 143. I'm feeling delighted about today's episode, not only because my guest has a fascinating story, but also because I felt such a connection during our conversation. Desmond Bovey has written a beautiful book, which is an exploration of a landscape in New Zealand that I've visited with my family and know a little about, so his work really spoke to me. Also, he's a Francophile and spent decades living in France. His story is about making a connection with the landscape and paying attention and putting pen to paper through nature art and writing. And all this came together in his book, which is called Tongariro National Park, An Artist's Field Guide. In our conversation, we talked about Desmond's beginnings, the adventures that led him to a life in France, and then the homecoming, which sparked this book, and the nature and landscapes and species and the moments that connected him again with the park and its inhabitants. Let's listen. Desmond, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm going to enjoy this myself. (laughs) So how about I tell the story about how I came to your work, which was that you have written this beautiful book, Tongariro National Park, An Artist's Field Guide. And my son's father received this book as a Christmas gift when we were holidaying in New Zealand and straight away... As it was being unwrapped, I knew this was a book I was going to love. I looked through it and I knew I needed to speak to you. So that's how I came to your work. And it's going to be great to dive into the book and your work now. Well, thank you very much. It's always good to get positive feedback like that. But I think the book in a way is a bit of a sketchbook. It's a bit of a journal. So I can see why it resonated for you. Yes, So on this podcast, I really like to start to get to know my guests by going back in history and touching on their creative beginnings and their connection with nature, the beginnings of their connection with nature. And I'd love to hear a little about your childhood in nature. And I I know that the, the National Park was a bit of a backdrop to your childhood. I'd love to hear about your early connections with nature and the park. Sure. I, um, I was uh, one of a family of seven children. Wow. And um, in those days, our parents weren't rich. Uh, we were just a kind of tribe in a way. And um, we, ran, we ran free in a way. You know, we, we, we didn't even – our parents bought us shoes, but we didn't wear them. You know? And yes. in fact, <laughs> our, our feet got so large, so flat, that um, it was actually torture to put on shoes. But we used to run around in the in the landscape, up and down the hills, and all over the place, lifting up logs, puddling around in creeks. I think a lot of people um, identify with that. That's how I learned to love nature. Yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you spent a lot of your adult life overseas, That's in right. particular in France. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about this big? adventure you had in France? How did you find yourself there? It, it was 
I, I never for a moment thought that I would end up in France. Just to backtrack a little bit, um, when I was in my very early 20s uh, with two friends, we rode horses all around the South Island of New Zealand. Oh, wow. So for we were on the road for a year and a half. Wow. Uh, trekking through the mountains. We did 2,000 kilometers. Uh, and that's a whole story in itself. Yes, that's uh, a book in itself. Uh, yes, it? it is. And those two guys are still my best friends. Yeah. Uh, but we're all we're all much, much older now. But after that, I sort of continued my vagabond life. I, I spent a year and a half hitching around Australia. Wow. That was also an adventure, you know, on a different yeah. scale, you know, being standing at um, intersections in the deserts waiting three three days for a lift. It was oh. the extremes of Australia, you know, was such a was such a surprise to me. And the Australian landscapes, you know, the vastness of it. Mm. As a New Zealander, I found it very, very difficult to adapt. I just thought there's nothing here. Yeah, it's, it's nothing. different. Mm -hmm. and, and then you learn to look at the nothingness. And then you notice that the trees that are, were kind of blue and shrubby were now orange. And then slowly they would they would evolve into something else and something else, and you ended up staring at these eucalyptus trees. And and I learned to love the desert. Mm. Uh, so that was a that was a formative time for me, you know. And of course, as a Kiwi, deeply jealous of Australian birds, you know. Like yeah. in, in another life, I would have loved to have done this book uh, about an Australian landscape. Because of the beauty of the birds and, and the lizards mm. and the snakes, and but never mind, uh, we we have to make do with what we've got, and, and we love our birds. We love them to death. Yeah. New Zealand birds are incredible. Yeah, and I ended up after that. I was still sort of vagabondish and footloose, so I ended up hitching all hitchhiking all around um, Europe. We drove also yeah. uh, for a year and a half in America up and down Canada to Guatemala in, a, in an old station wagon. Wow. Uh, and then I hitchhiked around um, Europe. And then I sort of f fell in love with France, really. It just mm -hmm. seemed to me um, a culture. It was as if I had some French blood somewhere, which I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I just fell in love with it and ended up in a university in France and studied for a year and a half. And then I became art director just by pure luck. And because I could draw because my French was still not really that hot. But my drawing skills got me in, got me into that job. And I got a good job, actually, as an art director. And we formed our own agency in the end. Okay. Uh, for 15 years, I was art director. And then I just, um, because more and more of my clients were environment, nature, and I, I sort of, you know how it is, you develop a network. Yes, I developed a network of people who trusted me and, and um, recommended me to each other. And so my last years in France, my last five, six, seven years were just as a freelance um, uh, nature illustrator. So 30 years there in France. And so that probably leads us to the next subject, which is what this book is about in a way, which is homecoming. Yes, yes. Tell me about that. You say in the book, and this is a little quote that really drew me in, it was, you said, I was hunting for a landscape to love and I was looking for a way back in. Yes. And this something about this just gives me goosebumps yes. because loving a landscape is something all my listeners will identify with. And that idea that you're coming home after 30 years of absence and there's people there, there's people to connect with, but the landscape 
needs to be loved as well. And I'd love to hear you talk about this homecoming and in particular finding a landscape to love. Yes, I think you, you've really put your, your finger on 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 the key the key phrases in that book, you know, because I, I did when you live you live when I lived in France, I really was away from it. I wasn't in mm. Paris, wasn't cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. It was a provincial uh, French city, Besançon, and um, I just didn't hear or speak English. I hadn't so in a way I and I got French citizenship. So I was a sort of a pretend Frenchman. Um, <laughs> but I lived in the world of France and I had this huge knowledge about French politics, French culture, mm -hmm. French actors, French birds, French animals and ecology. So when I threw all that in, it was no light thing. It was no small thing. I was already 60 uh, or knocking 60. So when I came back to New Zealand, I just had this feeling of what am I doing? You know, what have I done? What have I done? What did make, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, what, what did make you make that big transition home? Well, part of it was age. I was approaching retirement. You know, I still had a few sure. years to go, but I just thought, do I want to be old in France mm. or, or do I want to be old in New Zealand? And, it, and mm. it seemed to me that New Zealand, after all, was a kinder society. Like mm -hmm. I loved French society, I really loved it, but the French society is based on respect and you have to mm -hmm. sort of fight to get respect. Whereas I think in New Zealand and Australia, you're innocent until proven stupid. Or, or, <laughs> or, or, or Whereas in France, you have to prove that you, you, you should be liked. And, and it was more about respect. I, and I got a little f fatigued by that constant sort of tension, mm -hmm. that constant... Um, need to, to, to fight for respect. But when I came back, I had this brain full of French, you know, and all this useless <laughs> knowledge. Uh, so the need to reconnect and, and the fear that I might have made a huge mistake mm -hmm, was, mm -hmm. was in a way the genesis of this book. Yeah. Yes. And so this park, Tongariro National Park, you've, you've written this entire book, very detailed, exploration of the park. I wonder if you can give a few phrases that will summarize the landscape. I know that's a big ask, but um, about the mountains there, about the landscapes, just to give a bit of a visual picture to the listener. All right. Well, um, for people who don't know Tongariro, um, New Zealand, they will know vaguely the shape of the North Island. You know, mm -hmm. let's imagine that it's a kind of a diamond shape. Uh, and in the in bang in the center is this, this great mountain or three mountains actually, and they're just it's just really a huge pile of rocks that's been regurgitated up from uh, a fault line, uh, and the resulting landscapes are, are dramatic. You know, I mean, yes. there, there's there are glaciers getting smaller and smaller, but there are glaciers. There's a volcano that was um, used in Lord of the Rings films. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very, very complex geological uh, landscape, but it's also a patchwork of habitats. But yes. strangely enough, but I think it's important that almost wherever you go in that part of New Zealand, you see these mountains on the skyline on a good day. So, you know, you from my town, my hometown, Wanganui on the West Coast, we would say to each other, did you see the mountain this morning? You know, mm -hmm. because it, sometimes it was so spectacular. So it was a kind of gravity, really, a kind of point that um, 
that made sense of the whole island, if you know what I mean. And of course, it had significance to the Maori people as well, of course. Yes, and these three mountains, there's a um, there's a story that explains their creation, of course. That's right, there's a creation myth, yeah. yeah. All about um, gigantic, titanic uh, quarrels and jealousies and fights. Yes, <laughs> yes and, amazing. And, Go on. And you do feel it when you're there, you yeah. know, like they do seem to have this strange presence, you know, and you can imagine them fighting all that, yeah. Yes, so these three mountains, Ruapehu, Tongariro and Narahui are are a really significant part of that landscape. And as you say, they sort of anchor people. Have you seen the mountain? Have you seen yes. what's going on? It's a, it's a talking point. It's, a, it's something to, uh, yeah, to, to anchor, anchor right. the inhabitants. And, and also there is that kind of latent menace. Because yes. at any given moment, they could just blow their tops. Because it's a volcanic uh, area. They've done that before mm-hmm. in Lake Taupo, um, which is in fact a... a a huge crater of a vol- of one of the world's most one of the world's biggest eruptions. So that shaped the landscape too. And yes. maybe one day again, we'll. I hope not have, too soon. Have you been around while the volcano has been active? No, there there, there was some minor. There are minor sort of mm-hmm. minor eruptions that have taken place on um, Narahoe and mm-hmm. um, Rupehu, but I was on France during that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to this idea of finding a way back in. Yes. And you say in the book, and I love this line also, this book began as a quick sketch on the back of an envelope. And I'd love for you to tell that story about the moment when you sat down and you sketched in the park and then things started opening up for you. Yes. It was a strange moment. As I said, uh, I arrived back in New Zealand in Auckland. You know, the plane touched down and I thought, what have I done? Uh Oh, (laughs) And I hired a car and I drove straight south to to Whanganui. And, of course, when you drive to Whanganui, you have to drive across the volcanic plateau. Mm. And as I got closer, I just thought, will we see the mountain? You know, like Mm. just when we were kids, you know, will the mountain be visible? And it was absolutely splendid. You know, it was a beautiful day. So impulse... On impulse, uh, I turned uh, left to Wakapapa uh, in the Tongariro National Park and I went for a walk. And um, as I was crossing uh, this kind of upland of heath and boggy country with a, a zigzagging boardwalk, I looked up and there on a, on a track post was the New Zealand falcon, the Kariria in Maori. Now, New Zealand doesn't have many um, raptors, not like Australia, you know. So the falcon has a special place in our hearts, mm. you know. Mm. And it's also a very bold bird. It's an, a very unafraid bird. So, in fact, it wasn't very far away. It was just sitting on this post like a totem in a way and looking at me. And something about the way it looked at me, something about its hooded eyes and its stillness seemed to be saying to me, what took you so long? And wow. this sounds rather flaky and spiritual, but it was a moment that spoke to me. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, I tried to get a photograph. I thought, wow, wow, you know, and of course I fumbled with my camera and my backpack. Uh, so I came away with no photograph. But when I got back to the car, I grabbed a biro, mm. a, a ballpoint, and uh, an old envelope and sketched it. It wasn't a very good sketch. But in a way, it it captured that moment, which was... A critical moment for me because I thought, yes, I was right to come home. Mm. 
And that and that that turned into an image. When I got back home, I worked on the image, and that is the cover image of yes. that book. Ah, oh, I'm looking at it right now. That yeah. yeah. Oh, this is also meaningful, and it was almost as if that bird was giving you an invitation. <laughs> Yes, there's, I don't want to come. Up, I don't want to come across as too flaky, but uh, well, I'm all for. I'm yes, all for it. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, maybe you know, maybe it, it's 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 more about me than the bird, you know. Yeah. But I was ready for a message. But also, we, yeah. we you know, all through myth, birds have been messengers. You know, yes. we think of Noah and the Ark, and and yes. the, the hundreds of other examples of different myths. Mm-mm. So that was my own personal mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting that you mentioned photography because I think in some ways that photography can uh, – I, I just remember uh, going on a whale-watching tour and I was trying to get an amazing photograph mm. and, I f- I, and I was with my camera and I was taking a photo but I felt like I – was missing it. Yes. I was missing the experience. Yes, I, and so I, I put my camera away and I just experienced it. And you were talking about fumbling with the camera and yeah. I, I'm wondering about your feeling between uh, having a, a camera between you and nature or having a sketch pad and, and the difference between those two experiences. Mm. I really understand what you're saying about the whale and how photography just gets in the way in a way. I had a friend who was a mountaineer, and we climbed um, these peaks, but he refused to take a photograph, a camera. He said, you know, if I take a photograph, all I remember later is the photograph. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, what I want to remember is the sensation that I felt there, you know. Yeah. And also perhaps accepting that everything is in its way temporary and must mm-hmm, pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to get back to your question, I think that there's a there's a place for photography and there's yes. a place for, for illustration, uh, I think, I, and I, I love them both, but my particular my particular way is I, I'm a drawer. I'm a compulsive drawer. I can't <laughs> stop drawing. And that's how this book, in a way, began, because I didn't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to start drawing a book. I just drew and drew, and this pile of papers and notebooks kept, kept getting fatter <laughs> and fatter. And in the end, I said, is this a book? And if so, what kind of book? You know, yeah. and... I didn't really know right to the end, and then the editor said, we're going to call it an artist's field guide Mm-mm-mm. because it, it implied a certain subjectivity. It was my take on Tongarera National Park. I'm not pretending to be a scientist yeah. or, or to have written the definitive book on um, flora and fauna. And I also um, hope to capture a little bit of atmosphere, a little mm-hmm. bit of... Um, what I really wanted uh, was that the person reading the book would feel that they were with me, yes. walking along, walking beside me. And I was very pleased when um, two of the reviews, the best reviews, said that, said exactly that, that they had the impression that they were out walking with me, yes. looking over my shoulder. And I'm so glad that I avoided that top-down uh, textbook tone. I've got all the information. I know everything. I don't. You know, and there's nothing, I think one of the most wonderful things is just walking in nature with someone who's intelligent and curious and just swapping, speculating. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely that comes across. And I'm glad you mentioned curiosity because 
nature journalists as a mm. as a species mm. <laughs> are inherently curious. We talk about intentional curiosity a lot, like going outside with the intention to see what's out there because there yes. is infinite wonders out there, there even in local backyard. Even. I mean, to- yes. Tongariro is a spectacular part of the yes. world, um, but there is curiosities everywhere. And when we go outside with this mindset of being curious intentionally, we see we see all the things we might miss. So I'm interested to hear your relationship with curiosity in nature. I think that um, curiosity for me is a key word. Uh, really, really important. Um, in fact, to be honest, if, if I meet someone who's not curious, who's incurious, I just lose interest in them immediately. Yeah. I mean, curiosity is a sign of a lively intelligence. That's what you want from people. And those people who have who don't have that curiosity scare me in a way. <laughs> and, they, and they don't have wonder, you know, because wonder and curiosity, when we're talking about nature anyway, are very overlap, you know, they're yes. very much the same thing. Yes. But but also, um, I agree with what you said, you know, it can be very, very small things. It can be backyard mm. things, you know. Mm-hmm. It can be a few sparrows under the clothesline or it can yes. be... You've to, and you've got to learn to look. This is this is another big theme of my book is, that, is observation. You yes. can't draw if you haven't looked. And it's amazing how many people are not very good at looking. They're not it's very a skill good at that listening. you can get better at, I think. Yes, it's something that you have to cultivate. Yeah, mm. yeah, and and when if, and all drawers know that you know you're first of mm. all you, you you have to look and you have to um, that should be obvious. Mm. It's not mm. always so. Mm. Yes, I agree. I'm interested in your process. You know, you talked about just going out and sketching and then realizing, hey, this these sketchbooks are piling up and this could be something more. I'm wondering about how you did it. At what point you uh, started going out with intention to write this chapter or that chapter of the book or did you quite literally just gather your sketchbooks and then organize it together? What was your process for putting the book together? It was a pretty messy process because <laughs> <laughs> by then I was retired. Yeah. So I was just... As I said, I'm a compulsive drawer. I just <laughs> I draw every day, um, and I draw what I see, mm-hmm. and I learned as I went along. But the point where you know, a this is going to be a book, and mm. b how to organise that book, and mm-hmm. c how to go about getting it published, those were sort of messy. They weren't well defined moments. It's it's as if the the drawing was was what it was all about. Yes. And yes. I didn't actually sit down and dream of having a book that would be as successful as as this one has been. Actually, I think yeah. it's been very lucky. Uh, that came later. Mm-mm. Do you have um, your sketching kit in your in your bag in your pocket at all times? Well, I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say that you know I, I'm not well kitted out. I usually have okay. a notebook sometimes. Mm-hmm. To be really honest. I just have a few pages. Uh, I systematically, when I'm out for a walk, in a new, particularly in a new landscape, I'll note all the, the plants that I see and all the birds, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've got these lists. And if I don't and if I don't recognise the plants, which is quite often the case because alpine plants are quite, you know, they're quite specific, I'll do sketches and maybe take a few photos with my phone mm-hmm. 
and go back home and then swap them up. Um, but if you know the book, you'll, you'll know that, it, that it's it's really just a whole series of double of two page spreads, mm-hmm. and on almost every spread is a big landscape that covers two pages. So that one I would always sort of sketch out in the field mm-hmm. in pencil. Yeah, uh, and sometimes. Sometimes, not very often, I, I think, oh, that's not such a bad sketch after all. So I just add a bit of colour and a few of those got into the book. I didn't have to redo them because I think the faster you draw, and I've always been a very fast drawer, um, the more spontaneity has got, you know. Illustrators talk about overcooking. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I get so angry with myself when I just go a little bit too far. <laughs> and I lose spontaneity, you know, like you, you're aiming ideally for a kind of freshness yes. in, in your drawing. And I find myself drawn to that, you know, there's some amazing skilled artists who can reproduce plants in this perfect botanical art sort of way. And yet I'm drawn to the ones, my eye, my heart are drawn to the ones that are sketchy and spontaneous and wonky and yeah. have their own flavor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and to get back to what you were saying, you know, like if you, in a way, this sounds really corny, but in a way, everything is beautiful. Everything yes. is drawable. Yes. Uh, in my book, I drew a few of those kind of crazy signs you find beside the railway line, you know, because I just thought they were so graphic and weird, you know, yeah. all these symbols and that. And they were part of the park landscape too, you know, the railway line yeah. goes through the park. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, how to draw and what to draw. Yeah. I'm really interested in this idea of people in the landscape because those signs, you know, there's there's human inhabitants yes. and how that they interact and it might be local people, it might be hikers, it might be uh, whoever it is. I'm, I'm wondering about what you noticed about the human interaction with the landscape in the park. Well, it was interesting because um, I was – I was doing flora and fauna with a little mm-hmm. bit of geology. I, I wasn't interested in people, but mm-hmm. so you can't avoid them. Yeah, hikers are everywhere. So when you know it became inevitable that there was going to be a hiker or and or a tourist in the landscape, which I tried to avoid, I would just sketch sketch them in in pencil, mm-hmm. as make them as if they were kind of ghosts. <laughs> I had to admit that people frequent it. You know, like the Tongarera crossing, you is. It's it's like the main street of a town sometimes. It's a hiking you know, so highway. Yeah. I can't <laughs> pretend. I can't pretend that they're not there, but I phased them out a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, when I had to sit down and draw all the pre- introduced uh, predators, I thought, well, what's the worst introduced predator? What's one that's done the most damage? So yes. I drew a man with an axe. Uh, yes. So there's another human being, but. I think if I did another book, I would actually like to draw more people. I like drawing mm, people. Mm, yeah. mm. People are so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. They are fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really fascinated. I mean, I started this podcast to talk about stories of people interacting with nature. I find that really fascinating and the the things that go on inside a person when they commit to a landscape like you have. I Mm. think that's a really fascinating interaction. And that you mentioned invasive species and that's a whole other story because New Zealand is a very sensitive landscape and there's these introduced uh, plants and animals that are there. And the fact is that European settlers 
deliberately, as they did in Australia, in New Zealand, deliberately introduced species because of nostalgia for home. Yes. Uh, and this is part of the book. I'd love to hear your mm. take on that. Well, uh, actually, you know, amongst the more learned journals, often uh, introduced species get overlooked mm-hmm. or treated rather dismissively, you know. But in fact, I love the a lot of the introduced birds. I think there's nothing more beautiful than a goldfinch. Do you have goldfinches in? I maybe I haven't not seen sure. one, but maybe. But but uh, we have cockatoo. Right. Yeah. Okay. And we have rosellas that are everywhere mm-hmm. now. I knew that uh, rosellas. The eastern had... rosella, and you can't get a more beautiful <laughs> bird than that. Uh, and I just love to see them flashing through the landscape, uh, yeah. and chaffinches, and but. Most of them, most of the birds are not very dangerous. It's the mammals, mm. stoats, ferrets, possums, mm-hmm. rats. They are the big killers. They're the, they're, they're the baddies. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. When I was young, I my first backpacking trip was in New Zealand. Yeah. I was alone and I travelled uh, down the country for six months. And uh, every time someone heard that I was Australian, I was blamed for the possum problem <laughs> in New Zealand. <laughs> you weren't blamed. We, we weren't looking for them. <laughs> we wanted the fur. We thought oh, it would be great. Yeah. So they were introduced for fur. Yes, yes, and spread around the country really, very quickly um, by repeated introductions. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And the same with wallabies. Now wallabies are the big, really? the big villains, you know, because they're actually exploding, mm. eating out the landscape, you know. So there's war on wallabies now. Mm. Um, which is kind of weird because they're so cute, you know. You think, oh, well, how can we kill a wallaby? But they, we do have to, I'm afraid. Yes, yes, it's an interesting thing. And then um, New Zealanders come to Australia and they have this internet. I mean, I, I, we have a terrible, terrible problem with introduced cane toads here in Queensland. Cane toads, yes. Everywhere. And yeah. I have this internal physical hatred of cane toads. <laughs> they didn't do anything wrong. They were deliberately introduced to... Yeah. Ca- uh, counteract the cane beetle, which um, oddly does not inhabit the same yeah, physical space no, as no, them. No. So that was a total disaster. Mm. But th- I have this visceral reaction to cane mm. toads, and I have seen New Zealanders have the same reaction to cute little possums in in Brisbane. You know, mm. <laughs> it's well, a physical yeah. reaction. One of the um, propositions was to um, do some genetic engineering so that possums would become infertile. Okay. But um, we can't do that because our Australian neighbours will will not let. Them. <laughs> oh, they do it not. Could go they're the scared other way. that it might jump the uh, Tasman. These things do. Yes. Uh, and um, the, while they're not welcome here, yes. possums are very much a part of the um, ecology yes. of uh, Australia. It's interesting, isn't it? These experiments that. You don't really know the outcome, no, and no, we've seen some no. devastating effects of experimenting on yes. nature, like in that way. Uh, well, I talk about um, the European heather in yes. my book a lot. That yes. was that was nostalgia. You know, people mm. sort of almost top dressed um, <laughs> heather seed all through um, Tongariro, thinking of they could recreate Scotland, uh, and of course, it just proliferated and um, squeezed out all kinds of um, native species. Mm. It's just meddling, constant meddling, and Mm. it's often not – it's just not thought through. That's exactly right. It's Mm. not – the consequences couldn't have been predicted, I guess, back then because people didn't have the scientific knowledge or – No, we've got to remember that, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Speaking of Heather, I would love to hear you speak about 
the uniqueness of the colours of the park and Heather, when it's in bloom, obviously mm. colours the landscape. But apart from that, you mention the colours of the natural landscape and the palette and I would love to hear you speak about colour because yes. to me it's something very important for connecting with a landscape and I'd love to hear your thoughts mm. on that. Absolutely, absolutely. The um, I found after a while that I was only using three of four or five colors actually mm. mostly mm -hmm. uh, what were your colors Can my, I ask? my colors were natural sepia mm -hmm. I, I never like most artists I never touch black mm -hmm. but I used natural sepia as a kind of uh, toning uh, aid and if I mix it with Naples yellow which is a color of tussock here mm. uh, you get a nice sort of muddy uh, earthy tone which is very very much part of the landscape in mm -hmm. um, Tongariro so natural sepia um, Naples yellow for green I used sap green mm -hmm. um, although greens most artists will know are quite difficult you know and olive a lot of olive you know a lot of the plants are quite dull you know and heathy and sort mm -hmm. of uh, there, there are not many bright colors the only the occasional blue bright lake green or turquoise Mm -hmm. And then, of course, introduce all the bright colours that are introduced. That's Broom, uh, a yellow flowering plant, and heather, purple, and of course, um, hikers. You know, mm. they've got these bright beanies, <laughs> the and, their beanies the and, <laughs> and their packs and their jackets. And, yeah. There's a unique look to the hikers in New Zealand. I remember <laughs> when I was 18, I went there, I did a lot of hiking in Fiordland National oh, Park, okay. and, and the stripy. Uh, leggings with the shorts over the top this was a unique <laughs> <laughs> to me unique thing and I remember like p laughing to myself about this look and then by the end of it I, w I was doing the same yeah. I was doing the same thing it's so practical <laughs> yeah I suppose if you're looking for fashion icons you shouldn't go uh, to the backcountry huts of Fjordland <laughs> <laughs> but I agree and I wonder if looking at color is a go-to for you uh, for connecting with the landscape when you were going back in and I, well we've done a little bit of traveling in France this year uh, last year sorry and as we flew in I remember seeing like that patchwork of of countryside and the way that the colors were mm. adjacent and in this amazing way but I find personally that color says so much to you about a particular place and I've noticed it when we've traveled in New Zealand as well because we go there every year to see my son's paternal family there's something that again as we're talking about an inn a, a way to connect I find color to be that absolutely yeah mm. uh, I think for people like you and me um color I think just to broaden the subject a little I think that if you're an illustrator or a drawer like like myself in a way you privilege you have to privilege your 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 senses and mm -hmm. i've always i've always had very strong eyes you know interesting and, and uh, useless ears i'm hopeless <laughs> in music you know like I, I had a friend tried to teach me a guitar he almost threw away the guitar and <laughs> disgust you know because i i had no ear i still have no ear um, <laughs> And I just think that from a very, very young age, I, I favoured my sight. And mm. colour is, of course, mm -mm. important to me. Very important, actually. It can sometimes feel quite painful when you mm. see um, colours put together wrongly. <laughs> you know, uh, Sometimes yes. it works, of course. 
Yes. But but France, in a way, it's hard to talk about colour in France. It's, you have to be more regional. Okay, and yes. And I, I, yes. I lived in the east of France, which was mm -hmm. um, the Jura Mountains. So there was a lot of limestone there, you know, so we had these white cliffs. Mm -hmm. And of course, you've got much more seasonal variation, you know, uh, uh, you'd get a dark green forest that would suddenly turn all, all shades of russet and okra and, um, yes. and orange. And in um, summer, you've got these fields of rape. Mm -hmm. I don't know what... Um, Colza, we call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're just so vivid and beautiful, you know, yes. and that patchwork effect of them, you know, maybe that's what you saw from the yes. brain. Yes, yeah. I'm thinking now of France, and we spent some time uh, in Marseille and went to Le Calanque. Yeah, the, that's the, also limestone too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Can beautiful I, yeah. white and uh, um, juxtaposed with the deep blue of the sky, yes. and then this crystal clear water that was just uh, beyond yeah. words. Yes. Yeah, France is incredibly beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and very very rich. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. But, you know, Australia, talking about colours, Australia, all those reds, you know. Yes. And as you travel along, like, you you know, be hitchhiking and sometimes I'd get, I'd sit on the back of a truck, you know, and I'd just lie there looking at the landscapes and, yes. and say, oh, look how red the soil yes. is here, you know. And then after a while it wasn't the same mm. red. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, Australia has its own powerful colors yeah. absolutely and so i live on the east coast just outside of brisbane and we are a subtropical area mm. but we have lots of um forests that are classified as dry sclerophyll forest and oh. they have their own unique yeah. you know mm, dusty greens yeah. it's almost olive but it's 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 its yeah. own color almost gray yeah. almost green and eucalyptus yeah. yeah the eucalyptus yeah. leaves and and I spend a lot of time musing on this. And even in summertime, we get our landscape just gets very yellow from being dry. Uh -huh. And that that it's not yellow, but it's not cream. It's like this unique color. Uh -huh. And I've heard, had Kiwi friends and family come over and say, oh, everything's so dry. And, it, you know, talking about this color with um, – without appreciation mm. <laughs> and for me this is the color of my landscape yes. and this is the color that speaks to my heart and oh, it, yes. it's something mm. that connects me with mm. my place and and i just think that's such a beautiful thing mm. i think that kiwis kiwis have a very sort of chocolate box <laughs> idea of um beauty mm -mm. i did when I was a young yeah. man and went to Australia, I thought, well, Interesting. where is it? You this know? isn't quite it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, you have to learn. You just have to learn. And then suddenly, boom, you see it. Yes. This vast sky, you know. Yes. And it's just, uh, so, you know, looking, it goes back to what we were saying, looking is an apprenticeship. Yes. And it's a never-ending apprenticeship in a way, you know. You that is beautiful. That's a beautiful mm. way to say it. Looking yeah, is, so. is an apprenticeship. Yeah. And I, th I, I remember, again, when I was on my first backpacking trip, I flew into Auckland and I remember it so clearly. Mm. I flew over those fields, mm. the farms, and I remember seeing a green I'd never seen no, before. it's true. <laughs> Maybe in Tasmania so a little bit. I'm not sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it was so green in a way that my yeah. eyes had never seen, but yeah. that made such an impression. But even coming from France, I looked out the window and I thought, it's... It's like a postcard. All the colours are too vivid, you know. Can they tone it down a bit? Yeah. Even sort of 
suburban gardens were all sort of quite violently coloured, you know. And that's what I think I liked about um, Tongariro National Park when I was driving down. I yeah. thought of its colours as authentic. Mm-hmm. I like, and I just like those um, olives and greys and yeah. the colours of lichen and scree mm. and rock and um, uh, scrub, mm. tussock. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk about little details because in your book there's a lot of exploration into the tiny worlds of moss and other small things and I, I, I think of you down there hmm. uh, on your knees maybe searching and looking at the, at the details and hmm. this in itself is its own apprenticeship I think that noticing the little things, the, the feeling and the texture of bark or the or moss and what's going on in, the, in these tiny worlds. Tell me about that. Mm, that's true. There, there are up, up, if you get up to fairly high altitude, there are tarns, which are sort of small mountain lakes. Really, some are only as big as a pond, mm. but they have their own little ecology. And if you look, mm-hmm. you know, if you get down on your hands and knees and look, it's a funny little world. It's like a little world <laughs> on another planet because you've yes. got this strange. <laughs> often, it's very rich in iron. So you get a kind of yellow, a kind of uh, orange mouldy mm. growth that's not very attractive. <laughs> but, but you know, it's, there's a little world. It's like looking. And I remember looking, because I did a lot of horse riding, and I remember looking into my horse's eye once really, really deeply. Yeah. And it was like looking on another planet, you know. And I got the same feeling here, you know, looking into these little pools. But there is a lot, if you, if you stop looking at the big stuff, very small orchids growing on the trees. You could easily overlook them, but they're in their way. Yeah. They're very beautiful, you know, and insects, of course. Uh, and I write a lot in my book about, you know, the mountains when they're behind cloud. Mm. We look at the foreground. Mm-hmm. And then we realise that, you know, we've been so busy looking at these magnificent <laughs> peaks. It's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that we overlooked the foreground. And the foreground, it was very, very interesting. I wrote a lot about the foreground. But there was a haiku, I can't remember it exactly, that said something to the effect of clouds come from time to time to rest us from looking at the moon or something like that. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And some of the book is an exploration into specific species, different species, and yes. I'm wondering, because there's so many different things to look at, how did you choose who to showcase in the book? How did you choose... Who to learn about, and I, I also love that you did focus on like the the less assuming things. You know, we there's the there's the big things, but also there's the little guys. And I'm wondering mm. <laughs> how you chose which species to include in the book. Well, it goes back to what I said. I was just making. I was just learning as I went along. Yeah. Um, if if for example I, I was walking amongst some what we call podocarps and the the emergent trees in the in the New Zealand forest, the biggest trees, and if at that moment a kaka, a parrot, the native mm-hmm. parrot, flew past, I would draw the parrot. I would mm-hmm. draw the kaka because it was part of my experience. Mm-hmm. And if a cuckoo flew past, or if I heard one, I put it in. I'd put it in my. Um, in my double page spread, or if I saw um, these little carnivorous plants, these insectivores, uh, I'd put them in. So I just really put it in what I saw. But you know, sometimes it's a very small thing. There's, a, there's not much going on, you know, above a certain altitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll see a few grasshoppers and uh, they're flicking about, 
But I remember seeing um, this little moth, a day flying moth, and it, its wings were grey. You couldn't see it when it was on a rock, but when it flew, it had orange underwings. Oh, wow. It was only a small thing, but I thought, oh, I'll draw that, or, you know, yes. I'll try and grab a photo of that. Well, I was chasing it around and it kept disappearing every time it settled. <laughs> and these tourists came over to me and they, they, they wanted to know what I was um, hunting for, you know. <laughs> I, I tried to explain that, you know. I was doing a moth, there was a moth, you know, and they looked at me with frank disbelief. What are you doing? Pity. Pity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I love that because it, your page becomes the story of yeah. your experience in uh, that moment. Yeah, mm. I hope so. Mm. <laughs> Tell me about the writing because I found the writing really poetic and literary and evocative of of the landscape. And I wonder if you had a writing practice before this or if this was something you came to when the project started. What's your writing process? Well, first of all, thank you very much for saying that <laughs> because um, I sort of know roughly what I'm worth with my illustration, but writing has always, you know, writing has been my second love. Mm -hmm. I just love writing. I love reading. I read every night. Um, mm -hmm. But writing is hard. I don't believe anyone who says that writing is easy. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. And I sweated over it. Um, <laughs> but um, any compliment to my writing, and I've had some, it just goes straight to my head, you know. I just feel <laughs> drunk, because <you know? laughs> I did. I worked so hard. Yes, um, yes. And the, the thing about writing is connect. Mm. What the the person reading it has to have, in some way, felt what you're yes. feeling. Yes. And they have to say, "Oh, yes, that's that's you know." Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing about you know writing, my love of writing, I have had a few short stories published, but um, because I was away from the New Zealand scene for so long, mm. uh, I dropped out of ever getting, dreaming of getting published as a writer. Mm -hmm. But but that double skill, and it meant that, you know, I was I always worried that I was never going to be really good in one or the other, you know, mm -hmm. like I was spreading mm -hmm. myself too thin because mm -hmm. I'd draw for a while, you know, obsessively, and then I'd go through a stage of writing. Yes. Uh, but it comes together in your field writing and that's exactly drawing. right and yes. that's where I feel quite at home I quite like that in nature journaling we think of it like almost like layering or I think of it like this you know you have your observations of nature and you can put them down in different ways and we use words and pictures we also use numbers sometimes and each of these ways of expressing yourself on paper helps you build a a more rounded picture of nature or of your experiences. And so that's why I think your observations of nature through illustration are just enriched by the writing because it's it's another way of expressing your experience and mm. you do that so beautifully. Mm. I've been lucky that um, I've been able to do that. You know, like, Well, if the, if the editor had said, you know, we're going to get someone else to do the writing, I wouldn't have done sure. it. Yes, yes. Uh, and in fact, because I'm such a control freak, and he said, he said so, you know. I said, he, he said, you know, I realised quite quickly that I was dealing with a control freak. So, in fact, I did all the graphics myself. I did. Okay. Yeah. Well. And he let me go, you know, like he's, yeah. I said to him, well, how many pages do you think? And he said, look, just, it's your book. Just yeah. do what you feel is right. And that, well, I think I was very, very lucky, you know. Yes. 
it might have played differently if you'd had a different person going. Yeah, because I, I was a freelance illustrator for so mm -hmm. long and I knew that I had to do what my client wanted. I was mm -hmm. there for my client. I was being mm -hmm, paid to mm -hmm. please my client, not to please myself. But when I stopped being, you know, and when I did a project for myself, I wanted it to be for myself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I have a group of listeners that support the podcast on Patreon. And part of being a member of Patreon is that uh, I put my guests up there ahead of time or who I'm going to interview and then listeners are able to ask questions and a listener Jackie has a question for you which is also about writing and Jackie says I'm sure that you could write pages and pages for each part of the book each entry and they want to know how do you decide what to describe and how do you decide on the length of your description similar to you know how do you sketch or paint something do you write stream of consciousness do you write dot points how, how does the actual process of writing about something unfold mm. i would say that um i don't i try not to overthink when i yes. start yeah uh, so um sometimes it just comes on its own uh sometimes i don't want myself to intrude too mm. much uh, and at the same time, I don't want to sound too scientific. or mm -hmm. um, So it's finding a midway between the two. It helps that generally I've got a fairly, on most pages, I've got a fairly clear idea of how many words I'm allowed. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's three different levels of uh, reading in those double pages. I've got a heading with an introduction yes. and the text, which is, I don't know, maybe two to three hundred words. And then I've got floating captions. So I can say a lot mm -hmm. in the captions. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, the captions are read. People may not read the text. A lot of people sure. just look at the pictures. I'm mm -hmm. quite happy with that. <laughs> but um, so I have those three different levels of, uh, of reading. Otherwise, I can hardly answer the question, really, because I don't overanalyze. Yes. And yes. when I've written something, I like to let it set for a little while and then come back and I see obvious faults you know so it's a matter of tweaking mm -mm. and I do tweak a lot you know good writing is in revision yes yeah. yes isn't it interesting when someone asks you about your creative process sometimes it's hard to <laughs> pull apart what you know if someone asks in particular because I do a lot of watercolor painting and there's so much like water control and different things that you do instinctively after many years that yeah. it's hard to pull apart what it's what hard you to actually pull do. apart Mm -hmm. And there's that old thing about, you know, if you pull all petals off the rose to see what rose, you don't, you don't have a rose. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So maybe some things are left, a bit are left <laughs> unanalyzed, you know. It's a mysterious process. It know? is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love hearing you talk about that. When you went out in the park, did you did you go on foot? Did you go in a car? How, how did you explore the area? Were you hiking? What was the process? Well, we always drove to the park because it was about an hour and a quarter from Wanganui, you know, yeah. so, um, uh, and, and thereafter we parked and walked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. My partner loves running, so um, uh, he did running, you know, and he'd run for, her for yeah. 10, 15 k's, and then we'd join up at, a, at an agreed point which meant that I had that time alone. 
Yes. Um, which is good because if someone else is with you, you worry about boring them. You know, think you oh look at this, look at this, you know, oh look here's another little bit thing. But by that time, you know, we we were okay. We could continue. Yeah. Together, yeah, it was that teamwork. Is, yeah, <laughs> it's so lovely that he was involved in that, and that you had found a way to be side by side, oh, and yet not. It, it really worked. It worked perfectly because yeah. I'd, have, you know, I'd have my hour, hour and a half by myself in, yes. in the forest. I love that. Yeah, just love it. Uh, and he had his running, you know, so he had his endorphins yes. or whatever he yes. gets from running. <laughs> And I got my sort of forest healing, whatever that is. And, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and by yeah. that time, we were always in such good moods, you know, yeah. that we just um, tramped on happily. Um, yes. Yeah. This is a thing for nature journalists. In fact, I've talked to a lot of people about this, that the finding your way through, you know, being out in the forest with someone else mm. and do you do they do you make them sit with you do yes. they, do they do it as well do they no. go on on the hike or whatever it is yeah. i love that you have found with your partner we've worked out a, a really good system, system. <laughs> yeah the, um yeah i don't know if you can mm-hmm. i think it's a solitary thing drawing is a yeah. solitary thing and it's an introspective thing mm. you might you know you might find that mushroom just absolutely fascinating and wonderful and spend a quarter of an hour drawing it but the person standing beside you is thinking, oh, I'm hungry. I'm and ready like to go. A hamburger or something. <laughs> <laughs> so this landscape is absolutely shaped, as we said, by volcanic activity and just mm-hmm. the you you touched on that you were that you were documenting the life here, but the life is also informed and um, held by the geology of the landscape. And I'm interested in your take on the the connection with the geological history of this place. Yes, interesting. You, the 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 park is geology. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. it's nothing else. It's mm. um, and the biggest factor is possibly altitude. Yes, uh, because you know, you, as you get higher and higher and higher, you see all the different um, stages of vegetation yes. and and life forms. Uh, so of course you can't ignore it. Um, I deliberately did not go too much into volcanology. Mm-hmm. I, I got a kind of obsession about the lava flows on um, Narahoe and spent about a whole week obsessing about which one happened when and why and wondering mm-hmm. why the hell I cared and thinking, well, no one else is going to care. But sometimes you have to follow you these little obsessions. Yes. Um, but I just felt that it was outside my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I ended up drawing the rocks, and I loved mm-hmm. drawing the rocks. I never thought that I would enjoy it. And they stay still. <laughs> they yes, don't move that's around. a that's handy a big, benefit. That's a big help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like that you said that the park is the geology and the, and, is, yeah. and the plants and animals are interacting with that because mm. the plants are fed on the soil that was created from this history and the animals are sunbathing on the rocks and yes. whatever else. Yeah. yeah. What did you take with you when you were outside? It sounds like you did some sketching in the field and some sketching at mm. home. And yes. I'd love to know what what you had with you do you do you take colors with you or is it mostly pen and pencil i don't take color Mm -hmm. i'm just not organized enough and i think if i took color i'd have to take a seat sure Uh, yes yeah and then it's it's all starting to sound a little bit 
too organized for me because <laughs> because sometimes you know living so close to the mountains we could go up there on a spontaneous spur of the yes. moment decision mm-hmm. and we'd just grab a big bottle of water and maybe mm-hmm. buy a couple of sandwiches at the service station uh, and be off so drawing directly color drawing directly in the field i've done i didn't do very much mm-hmm. at all Mm-hmm. So is it a is it pencil you were using? Is I'd use pen- a pencil and then I'd sort of write in the notes olive or red yes. highlights or um, yeah. And, and strangely enough, often my the image that I would compose in pencil was very very close to the original. Mm. I didn't often deviate. You know, I mm. might have shuffled a tree out of the way or maybe mm-hmm. you know a branch out of the way or and I'd put a bird in. Yep. But um, mostly, I was fairly faithful to that. yes. It's lovely to have that. And again, as what we were talking about, how um, sometimes photography can make you remember the photograph. I feel that sketching, you know, you in your in your studio or wherever you paint later on, that looking at that sketch can take you back. It can drop you into that moment that you oh, yeah. that you were. Oh yeah, and there were special moments, you know, special mm-hmm. moments that you looked up and here was a great big kaka. <laughs> with the sun on it, and it was yeah. all red, and um, and the the falcon, but also lots of other really happy encounters. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, you talk in the book about touching a feeling of what you describe as calm wonder, and this really speaks to me because that is the very reason why I started nature journaling to have a moment of stillness with nature, and and I'd love to hear you articulate what that means to you and where and how you are most likely to drop into that moment of calm wonder? Mm. Well, you've just described it very well. Um, Mm. Does it happen to everybody? I suppose. I don't know. Or perhaps we're just the kind of people that really need nature. Mm. Mm. Um, And for me, it's often associated with, again, with birds. Mm. You know, like I, if I'm feeling a little down, I remember once in France, the first couple of years were quite tough. Mm. Uh, and I was in winters, the winters were so cold, I couldn't believe it, you know. But I was walking along in a forest and it was so steely and bare and on the track was kind of muddy. But there was a puddle in front of me and there were two goldfinches. Mm-hmm bathing in this puddle, you know, and it was just so beautiful. And I just felt uplifted. Yeah. And I thought, for once I'm in the right moment, in the right mood, at the right time. Uh, it doesn't happen all that often. Yes. Uh, so I just go with it now. I just love it when it happens. Yeah. It's a powerful feeling, isn't it? And I, I always reflect on one of the first times I felt that when I was very young, maybe eight or nine, and it just moved me so much and I felt just completely connected with everything that was around me in that moment and just that realisation that you are a human being, which is we are animals and we're part of this landscape as much as we like to pretend that we're not. Very important. Was this in the forest or was it in...? It was actually in a property that was adjacent to my school and I wasn't supposed to be there but I wandered up the driveway and I sat in this little sunshine, ray of sunshine underneath some pine trees and the so the smell of pine just complete was completely Mm. redolent and I was just there with the sun Mm. and the pine smell Mm. and it I just realized something like we're part of this and we get 
we have our senses. We uh, have been given this, for whatever reason, we've been given this opportunity to be here and to experience the world with our Mm -hmm. senses and with our heart. And again, you you know, you were saying like you didn't want to be too woo-woo about it. But for me, that, that experience is indescribable Mm -hmm. and something to be totally grateful for and when it comes it's just the best when it comes enjoy it but perhaps you can cultivate it to a certain extent too i think so Uh, but i think that you put your finger on it when you said that part of it is belonging to nature being Mm -hmm. part of nature Mm -hmm. you have to get away from the static of civilization the noise (laughs) of traffic the the babble the babble of radio and TV and even social media, excuse me. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that A, it's about recognizing it when it happens and perhaps yes. cultivating it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, in nature journaling circles, we often talk about the ability to fall in love with nature and how paying attention and being curious and being with part of nature helps us fall in love yeah so falling in love with nature as as an experience you know did you feel after writing this book that you had a deeper love for the park i probably felt during the writing the book i felt Mm. it after it has a kind of reality you um you sit there and you scribble away you know and you're in your own little world and, Mm. and and um you it's yours yes but when the book comes out, you think, gosh, it's a book. You know, I've done it's, a book. Yeah. Um, and then you think, oh, my poor thing, it's like having a child. You know, my God, it's got to go out it's into out the world. It's out in the world. Yes. It's, going to be, it's going to be misunderstood. People are not going to like it. People are going to mistreat it. But in fact, of course, it was. it's had a lovely reaction. But um, yeah. it's. I don't have the same feeling for it anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I feel a kind of proud, pride. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. um, I don't feel involved in it anymore. Mm-hmm. No. That's interesting. Do you have another project to focus your in- attention on? Well, I said that I wasn't going to do anything for for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been writing about the horse trick that I told you about. Yes, you know, that fantastic. sort of coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that I'm just playing around, and I can feel the urge to draw again. You know, yes. like I'm enjoying the words. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether I would embark on such a long project because this was two to three years, you know. Mm-hmm. Not sure mm-hmm. if I have those two to three years now. Yeah. You could just play and see what, yeah. where it leads you. And even yeah. exploring old memories can be such a joy yeah. in itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, like I, I could do f- f- nature journaling. I have done mm-hmm. nature journaling, you know. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of tra- um, traveling in Africa. Mm-hmm. And my f- African friends, when they finally trusted me, took me to all kinds of ceremonies and um, mm-hmm. kind of mystic, you know. But I had, I've had, I was looking at my illustrated journals from that period. Mm. They're very, very evocative. You know, it's such a nice way to record memories. Absolutely, you've had some amazing adventures. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and opening this little window into the park and your experience of nature there. Thank you so much, Desmond. Thank you very much, Beth, and it's been a pleasure to talk. (music) 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Desmond. I just love this gentle musing on nature and art and what it is to make a connection with the landscape. I think this idea that nature can bring us home is really powerful. When we connect with a landscape, we have a strong sense of place and it can be an anchor in our lives. I'd love for you to visit the show notes for this episode where you'll find a link to Potton and Burton who published Tongariro National Park and Artists Field Guide. You can purchase the book from them if you like. I highly recommend it if you know the park or would like to be taken there through the pages of Desmond's sketchbook. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.